0: Would you open up your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John? John chapter 6, verse 16, is where we're going to be looking today. We've been going through a series called Signs of Life, where we've been looking at the seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. Um, Of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Sin meaning together, optic meaning seeing. They they see things together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke... uh, include a lot of the same content, they tell a lot of the same things. However, John is different. Uh, John knows things the other ones don't as far as he tells. John, of course, being an eyewitness, one of the apostles, uh, comes in and, much later than the other Gospels, gives information that they hadn't given before. Now, all this is important because John also leaves a lot of things out. Uh, the other Gospels mention many, many miracles, and John only tells seven. John leaves out everything except seven miracles, and he, instead of calling them miracles or wonders, he calls them signs. He says they're signs that point to something. So instead of saying, look at all the different things that Jesus did, John says, let me tell you seven things that Jesus did and what those seven things tell you about who Jesus is. See, a miracle on its own is not that important. You say, well, wait a minute. What what do you mean, Justin? A miracle on its own is not that important. Well, we read in the book of Revelation um, and even in the book of Acts that demons perform miracles. (laughs) That just because someone does something that's impressive doesn't necessarily mean that they are what you need. You remember in the book of Exodus as Moses went and he performed miracles. Pharaoh's magicians did tricks too, but they didn't have the power of God on them. So the miracle itself is less important than what the miracle points to. And these seven signs of Jesus point to the person of Jesus. We saw the first miracle he performed where he turned the water into wine, told us that Jesus is the kind of God who makes a change. We saw when he healed the nobleman's son at a distance, that not only is he a healer, but he is the master over space. The distance makes no difference to him. And he's just as much here as he was in Jerusalem. We saw when Jesus went and uh, healed on the Sabbath, we saw that he was not bound by time. And his sacred time didn't bind him. We saw last week as we saw Jesus feed 5,000 men, women and children, not included, with five loaves of bread and two fish, that he is the one who supplies our needs. He is the bread of life. You see, each one of these miracles told us something about Jesus. And as we come to the fifth sign in the Gospel of John today, it is one that I'm afraid gets neglected. It's kind of tucked in here. It's just a few verses. And so sometimes it seems like uh, people forget about it. Uh, also, this is one that's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke also. And so when people read it, sometimes they forget John's unique perspective on it. There are things the gospels, the, uh, the synoptic gospels tell us that John doesn't about this miracle. And there's a perspective on it that John gives us that the synoptic gospels do not. So as we read here, it's just... Uh, a few verses, just eight verses are a text, although I am going to read verse 15 to get you started, John uh, six fifteen is just after he's fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Remember, they believe at this point that he is the prophet who is to come. They say, as Moses gave us manna, now Jesus must be the prophet like Moses. He must be coming to set us free. So let's read in verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. I want you to imagine this. Jesus is here with this massive crowd. Remember, we said 5,000 men. If you assume conservatively, one spouse and two kids for each of them, which is very conservative, this is not America, is ancient Israel, then you're looking at 20,000 people at least. Really, you're probably looking at 30, 40,000 people in this massive crowd. Jesus comes up to them, and they, are, they followed him across the sea in the late afternoon. He says, what are they going to eat? The little boy comes and brings him five loaves and two fish. Jesus blesses it, spreads it out, and there's 12 baskets of food left over. And the people say, wow, <laughs> who is this man? They say, this is the man who is going to deliver us from the Romans. This is the man who's going to be our king. All the people we've had before that have tried to overthrow our oppressors have gone a little while and then fallen out. They've gone a little while and they've fallen out. But this kind of man who can feed thousands with just a little bit of food, he's got real power. He is God's man to overthrow this. He, like Moses, led us out of Egypt, is going to lead us out of the hands of the Romans. But they notice Jesus doesn't start to say anything like that. And so they decide they're going to make him king by force. Now, what does that look like? Well, you know, I don't know exactly what they had in mind. And a mob usually does not have much in mind. But they just think we want him to be our king and we're going to make him be our king. Maybe they were going to start a revolt right there and name Jesus their leader so he would have to defend himself. Maybe maybe they were just going to try and grab him and push him to the capital. We don't know. But they said, we are going to make him our king. We are going to use him to overthrow the Romans. And here's the problem. The people who just saw this miracle were looking for the miracle. Jesus says later, you didn't come because of the signs. You come because you had your fill of bread. They see Jesus not for who he is, but for what he can do. And so they decide they're going to turn him into a king. And Jesus will not be made king like that. And so he goes up into the mountain by himself to pray. We read the other Gospels. We see he sends the disciples away. He tells them, apparently, you know, wait for me until sunset. If I'm not back by sunset, you go on. And he goes up into the mountain by himself to pray. Now, that itself is a model thing. And maybe it's not the essence of the account here, but I think it's important enough to mention. When you're faced with some kind of temptation... You know, what's your response? When, when you're tempted by something, how do you fight that temptation? There's lots of different ways that we do it. Sometimes you say, well, I don't really fight it at all. I just, sort of, I just sort of give in to it. If I want to do it, I do it. You know, if it feels good, do it. If it seems like a good idea, I'm just going to go along with it. It makes sense to me. Of course, the Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man and the end thereof's death. The heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? The Bible tells us that we can't trust our own instincts. Your instincts have betrayed you lots and lots of times. There have been lots of things that you thought were a good idea that tempted you, that drew you in. And the first taste was sweet and it rots in your mouth. So what do you do? Well, what some people do is they get on their phone and they start talking to people, right? They say, oh, you know, I'm really struggling with this thing. And somebody says, yeah, you're right. You really shouldn't do that. You say, oh, talk to you later. Call somebody else. I'm really struggling with this thing. Oh, you know, yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I probably should go ahead and do this. Yeah, you deserve it. You're right. I do deserve this. Sometimes with temptation, we are like um, David's son. uh, Sorry, Solomon's son, Jeroboam, who decided to just talk to different people until he found the person that was going to tell him what he wanted to hear. Sometimes when we face temptation, we decide, and this is, this is the, the human condition, isn't it? Hey, this wall right here is my temptation. Well, I'm not going to do it. 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 I'm going to get awfully close to, whoops, how did that happen? How often with temptation do we say, well, how close can I get? See, with temptation, we fight it lots of different ways. We, we say, well, I'm just going to go take my mind off it. We say, whatever. But Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, said, what I need to do to go fight temptation is I need to go away by myself and pray. <laughs> we live in a world where there is no silence. There is no solitude. There is no peace. And you cannot hear the still, small voice of God when everything around you is crying out, crying out, crying out for attention. You say, oh, I just feel so far from God. Well, see, God is a gentleman and does not shout. And so when you've got your phone ringing, people coming, things going on all the time, all the time, all the time, we live our life at such a fever pitch that there is no room for the voice of God. You ever been trying to talk to somebody? um, My my mom's family in Pennsylvania is like this. Uh, We go up there, and things are... Things are different in different places in the United States that you go. And when you go into a room in Pennsylvania, at least in my mom's family, there are eight people in there, and all of them are talking right now. <laughs> and you, not, I, I don't know how many conversations are going on because you think that this person's talking to this person, and then they switch to this person, and somehow they're able to hold all these different things together. I don't even like to talk with the radio on. You know, one at a time, please. But they've got all these different things going on. But you can't deal with God like that. You know, you can't say, I'm going to read my Bible with the TV on while I talk to somebody, while I whatever. You know, you can't pray while you are distracted by a million different things. Now, I mean... I'm not saying, you know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. You can pray while you're driving. You can pray in a crowded restaurant. You can do all these different things. But there is some level of you that has to be separate. And what I find interesting here is that Jesus needed that. You say, well, I'm strong. You know, maybe somebody with a short attention span, maybe they need to go away and get off by themselves. Maybe they need a prayer closet. Maybe they need to get out of town every once in a while. But not me. I'm strong. But Jesus, the son of God, the prophet who was to come, the king of glory, to fight temptation says, I need to go off by myself for a little while. I'll see you guys on the other side. When was the last time that you got away with just you and God? I promise that you do not have the strength to fight temptation that Jesus did. The reason for that is not that you don't have the potential for that strength. Jesus fought sin through the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. It's that our muscles are so flabby from disuse. Our ability to fight temptation is so weak because we give in to temptation so often. Jesus never gave in to temptation, so he was perfectly toned to resist it. Every time we give in, we get weaker sin is stronger. But Jesus had a whole lifetime of close intimacy with God, resisting sin, fighting temptation. And yet, when they come and say, we're going to make him king, he says, I need to be by myself to pray. Now, huh, that's not a miraculous sign, but there is kind of a loose sense in which we might call that a miracle for a human being to have that kind of humility. To say, when all the crowds want me. You know, when people are kind of upset with you and you're just you're down, you want to be by yourself. You'd go and you, you do something, you don't get a promotion, and everybody in the office knows you didn't get the promotion. You say, Well, I don't really want to see anybody today. But what about when you're on top? You say, you know what? This is starting to go to my head. I need to go be by myself. I don't need all this recognition right now. So Jesus, that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, you want to make me king, I'm going to go away and I'm going to pray. Now, then we see in the very next verse, and when evening was now come, even, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. So here's what happens. It's, uh, we know from the other Gospels that the uh, multiplying of the fish and the loaves already happened in the late afternoon, because the, that's why they don't have time to go get something else to eat. So this all happens in very quick succession. Jesus multiplies it, spreads it out, and then he says, I'm going to go by myself to pray. Disciples, you wait here. They get in the boat, it gets dark, and Jesus hasn't come, and so Jesus had told them to go across the sea. Now, another thing I want you to know here is that what happens in the rest of this story was therefore not an accident. You no, know, of course, everyone almost in the United States is familiar with the story of Jesus walking on the water, and so I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. That's the fifth sign, is Jesus walking on the water. This storm is going to come up, and they're going to, Jesus is going to walk out to them on the water. Now, a question. A question for you. How many people have you heard that want to say that when a storm comes, it's because you're outside of the will of God? Okay. If Something bad happens to you. Well, you know, what did you do wrong? That's, that's what Job's friends were like. They said, you must have sinned in some way and God must be punishing you. Um. You turn on the TV and somebody says, You know, if you just had enough faith and you would just send me an offering, then I will plant that seed offering and you'll never get sick again. You'll never have any trouble again. You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. You'll never lack anything ever again. And so if you don't, if you are sick, if you're not rich, if you're not all these different things, it must be because you're doing something wrong. Now, I'll say sometimes that's true. Sometimes bad things that happen in your life are God's way of correcting you. The Bible says he chastens every son he receives. Sometimes God says, hey, you're outside of my will. I'm going to smack you back into my will. But sometimes the struggles you face are not because you're outside of God's will, but because you are inside God's will. Here, the disciples needed to have their faith stretched. They needed to have their spiritual muscles strengthened. And God knew the only way to do that was through some opposition. God knew the only way to do that was to put them to the brink. They said, they said when somebody tells you that the Christian life is a life without difficulty, a life without trouble, these are people that don't understand that God uses those things. Uh, Adrian Rogers said, faith is like film, it's developed in the dark. Isn't that true? You know, when you can see exactly how everything's gonna work out, your faith doesn't grow. If I've got everything in my hand, I don't reach out for God. But when I say, I don't even know where the next step is, it is pitch black. That's when God strengthens you. That's when you grow. That's when you change. And so, of course, we know also John kind of writes uh, these very vivid things. It says, it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. Of course, that's literally true. It was dark. It was nighttime. But if you go through the Gospel of John, John doesn't just tell you it was dark when it's nighttime. He doesn't just tell you it's light when it's daytime. He's always making a point. The most famous place that John says it was dark is when it says Judas left the dinner to go hand Jesus over, and it was dark. What is darkness spiritually? Darkness is where Jesus is not. Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nine to the ship, and they were afraid. So imagine this. If you, the Sea of Galilee is about 300 feet below sea level, and it's got mountains on either side. So what happens is the hot air from the desert sits on the Sea of Galilee. But then the cold air from the mountains comes rushing down and stirs up storms. You know, these pop-up storms out of nowhere. And these violent winds rush back and forth. And the sea, it just, they, just, they just come out of nowhere. Uh, when Colleen and I were in Israel for our honeymoon, you saw it was sunny, and then all of a sudden these black storm clouds swoop in. And it's, it's just this, this, the Sea of Galilee is just a spot where this happens, where storms come crashing out of nowhere. But these disciples... You remember Jesus called many of his first disciples from the seashores of Galilee. (laughs) These are expert fishermen. They know this. But when the storm comes, we're going to see they're afraid. This is a a massive storm. The wind's rocking and pushing the boat back and forth. they are 25 or 30 furlongs. A furlong is a little more than a tenth of a mile. They're two and a half, three and a half miles out in the water. And out there, two and a half, three and a half miles from the shore, they rock back and forth. Now, I don't know about you. When um, I'm on a boat and I start to see the shore disappearing, I start to get more and more nervous. You know, I I look at that. If I'm about, you know, the distance from here to that door, say, all right, I could swim that. I get a little bit further, start to say, huh. What's going to happen? Here they are, three miles out. That's a long way to swim. Three miles out and petrified. And then, you you just love the way the Bible gives just the, the perfect little details. They were afraid. Well, yes. (laughs) But it's also a little funny that they're afraid. Because if you've ever worked, uh, you know, something physically intensive, you get hungry. You eat something, you work a little bit. They've been rowing all night. It's the fourth watch of the night. It's about three in the morning. Between three and six is the fourth watch. They've been rowing all night, and they must have eaten something, right? Well, what did they eat? You put your thinking cap on. And you say, well, Jesus went up into the mountain, probably fasting and praying. The disciples didn't have any food, except Jesus had multiplied the five loaves and the two fish. How many baskets were left over? Twelve baskets. Sitting with them in the boat, each one of them had a basket of miracle bread. And I just imagined them. Reaching down, taking a bite of this bread that Jesus had made from five loaves and two fish and saying, I just don't know how we're going to make it out of this one. This sure is bad. I'm getting hungry. What are we going to do when we run out of strength? You see you just see the absurdity of it. As we talked about, this takes place at the Passover. and It reminds me also of the... Um, when the people made the golden calf, you remember, Jesus went up, Moses went up into the mountain to speak to God. And the Israelites said, well, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's happened to him. He could be dead or anything. Well, what was next to the Israelites the night they made the golden calf? A pillar of fire that had led them out of Egypt. The pillar of fire, the Bible says the pillar of fire stayed with them from when they left Egypt until they got to the promised land. So when they are at the mountain, when Moses is up and they decide they're going to worship idols, here is a blazing pillar of God's presence. When the disciples are afraid on the boat, they're eating the bread that Jesus had multiplied by his power. And before you get too critical of them... When you doubt God, when you wonder and you say, Oh, I just don't know how this is going to work. I just don't know how this is going to be. How often are you surrounded by the monuments of all the things that God has done for you before? They were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I. Be not afraid. This is very interesting, very important. In Greek, he doesn't say, it is I. He says, ego Imi, I am, be not afraid. Now, on its own, ego Imi is the normal way you say, it's me, I am. But John uses it very carefully, very intentionally. And at this point in the gospel, if you were reading it in Greek, you'd sort of wonder, huh, that's kind of strange how he put that. And then you get a little farther in the chapter. He says, I am the bread of life. He get a little farther. I am the light of the world. He says, eh. on and on and on. When they ask him, are you the son of the blessed one? He says, I am. And you trace it back through the Bible. And the reason I think it's so important here, the thing that tilts us over into knowing what he's doing, is this all has to do with the Passover. So you remember, Jesus is now working through the Passover backwards. So he comes to his disciples And he gives them bread. You remember in the wilderness, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and they ate manna from heaven. Jesus said, Moses didn't give you the manna, my father gave you that manna. I am the bread of life. Just like when they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and they didn't have to hunt, they didn't have to provide themselves food because God dropped it down from heaven. Jesus said, I am the provider of your bread. Before they went into the wilderness though, they crossed the sea. Now, they didn't become God's people when they crossed the sea. God had called them out in the person of Abraham. They really were, became his people. The nation was born on the Passover night when he said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When they were bought by the blood, he purchased those people for himself. When they went through the waters, though, they were identified as his people. That's just uh, When we're saved, we become God's people. When we're baptized, we're identified as God's people. We're separated. But then you go back a little before that and you remember before the plagues, before everything else, Moses, an 80-year-old man, was tending his father's flock on the backside of Horeb. And he came up to the burning bush and the bush was not consumed. And you remember, he said, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And so as we go through this, your mind starts to remember all these different events in the Exodus. And God, speaking through the burning bush, told Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, when the people ask me who sent me, what will I tell them? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, I am. The God is the self-existent one. He is not I was? And sometimes people treat God like that as the great I was. Sure, didn't He do a lot of great things back then? Sometimes people treat God as the great I will be. Heaven's going to be fantastic someday. But God says, "I am that I am." <laughs> God says, I'm here right now. I am. That I am present in your time of trouble. And the reason that God was is because when it was, he he is. The reason God will be is that when the future comes, he still is. He says, I am. I am that I am. Who makes God exist? He is that he is. (laughs) Who tells God what he will do? He is that he is. Who, if God be for us, who can be against us? He is that he is. He said, I am that I am. And so in the midst of this storm, the disciples, rowing away, I imagine their conversation. Remember, what did they want to do? The people had wanted to make Jesus king. And Jesus sent them away. He said, I'm not going to be a king like this. And you imagine the disciples rowing. They said, oh, we're going to drown. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Perish. Not the same time. Not the same story, but the same idea. That we're going to drown. What's going to happen? If only Jesus had just let them make him king, we wouldn't be out here in the middle of the lake. And then Jesus coming, walking on the surface of the water, says, I am. What does this sign point to? You know, what's interesting is that in john jesus does not calm this storm now we know from the other gospels he did calm the storm but G- john doesn't tell us that john doesn't include that why because he doesn't want you to get confused about the point the point here is not jesus control over nature although we know that's true the point is that when they tried to make him a political king when they tried to show that they tried to force him to be a king to fight against the Romans, he came and said, "I'm going to show you the kind of king I am on my own terms. <laughs> I'm the kind of king who just as I split the waters and the people <laughs> walked across on dry ground. I'm the one who walks on the water now. <laughs> the Israelites, the greatest miracle in Israelite history was when they were set apart as God's people by walking across The dry ground in the midst of the water. Jesus is set apart. We read in Matthew they worship him as the son of God at this point. Jesus is set apart as the holy one of God. When he doesn't walk on dry ground, he walks on dry water. He comes marching across and he says, I am. He is the king. When John came preaching, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's government is here. God's rule is here and Jesus comes in his person. he says, I am the self-existent one. This world is mine. These people will not make me king. I am king. Ultimately, he would be crowned not by going to Rome and taking a spear, but by having the spear pierced in his own side. Ultimately, he would not be crowned by his friends, but by his enemies. And yet, nevertheless, after he died, after he stood in our place, he rose again, was crowned with honor and glory. He that in the, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. Here he is. Here it is that in the midst of the storm, John doesn't point out that Jesus calmed the storm. And I think the reason he does that, although Matthew and Mark do, is not because he didn't know. You know John was there. He saw Jesus calm the storm. It's because Sometimes God doesn't calm the storm. Sometimes there's somebody and you're concerned over them and praying for them, and God doesn't answer your prayer. Or he answers it no. Sometimes there is something and you just don't know how it's going to work out, and God does not come and cut the knot for you. Sometimes it just stays messy. Sometimes you're worried about a job or a bill or whatever, and it just doesn't come through. And what John teaches us here is that whether or not he calms the storm, Jesus is still the king. (laughs) That whether or not he calms the storm, Jesus is still the king. That everything that happens is not happenstance. Things do not happen randomly. Things happen under the sovereign auspices of the king of kings and lord of lords. You know, it's the political season. People get tied up in knots, don't they? They get so worried about what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it seems like everyone's worse than the last as far as how upset people get, how intense people get. You know, and you've got... uh, It comes to the point, I guess, in the last several recent elections where both parties believe that if the other person wins, it'll be the end of civilization. if, if If this election doesn't go my way, you know, Conservatives say if Hillary Clinton wins, the world is over. The Liberals say if Donald Trump wins, the world is over. The moderates say one of them's gonna win, the world's over. You, know, you understand? There's all this tension and all this fear. The Bible says some trust in chariots and some trust in horsemen, but we will trust in the Lord our God. The reality is there is no president, there is no congressman, there is no Supreme Court justice. Who is going to fix the world? The only one that is going to fix the world is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. (laughs) You remember when the seventh trumpet sounds, what do they say? They say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. God works all things together for good to those that love him, the call according to his purpose. So I want you to imagine now, if God is the king, how does that change your life? One, there is no room to worry. You cannot change one hair on your head from white to black. One, there's no cause to worry because whoever becomes in political power was set up by God. Romans 14 says that. Right. But two, it means that we need to think about our lives differently. We need to think about our sin differently. You know, I read an illustration in a, a little book called Your God is Too Small. And fortunately, I had a real-life illustration to use. So yesterday, uh, we went to... a painting class for Colleen's mom's birthday. And uh, I don't know, they didn't ask for my application when I finished this to be a teacher there. I'm confused. But they sat us down and, you know, gave you a little canvas with the outline of Texas on it. Had you go and said, okay, now make a black stripe here, now make a black stripe here. Uh, They didn't put the numbers on the page for you to paint over, but it was about close enough, right? Now, let's say that I decided I was really impressed with myself. And I'm going to go and I'm going to become a painter. So, uh, you know, Brother Ronnie and I were cutting up in there. We said we were going to bring ours to Sister Carrie to show her this morning about art. Teach her how to paint, you know. So, I want you to imagine if I was really impressed with myself. And so I went to a museum. And I saw a little scrap of canvas. And I said, oh, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to impress my friends. I'm going to paint this right here on this little piece of canvas. So I do, I get it out and paint it. I'm impressed with myself and laugh, and I step back. And I realize that what I thought was just a little piece of blank canvas is the bottom corner of a masterpiece. And I have painted my little frivolity on the corner of something incredible. And spoiled it. I've ruined something. I've ruined the Sistine Chapel ceiling by painting Welcome Y'all on it. Now, can you imagine how you would feel in that moment if you realized you had done that? You didn't think it was a big thing. You thought, it's just a little piece of canvas. It's a couple bucks. If they catch me, I'll buy them more canvas. You know, it's just, I'm just, I'm just going to show off a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. But when you see what it has done to the magnificent master tapestry, your heart sinks. Can you imagine that? Can you feel that? That, that, that illustration resonated with me for some reason. Now want you to imagine, what is conviction of sin? Well, it can come in lots of different forms. But one form I think we neglect is that you've been going around about your life doing things how you want, when you want. You say, oh, it's not a big deal here. I'm going to have a little fun here. And one element of the conviction of sin is when I step back and I realize, oh, that was not a blank canvas. That was part of a magnificent master plan. And I've just defiled it. I have just made something beautiful filthy. I didn't mean necessarily to have all the consequences it was going to have, but I did. So I look at the plan, God's plan for the universe, God's master plan for the universe, and I say, well, I was just having a little fun in this corner of it here. But if he's the king, he has organized everything piece by piece for a purpose. And what should be my response, then, when I say, I've spoiled this part? is repentance. Repentance to say, God, I am so sorry that I have thrown you off as the rightful owner of this painting. That I have sabotaged your plan because I thought my own plan was worthwhile. That I have come and made something silly on top of something spectacular. Oh, Lord, I turn from my sin. I'm a rebel against you. (laughs) And then faith. Part of the faith is, yes, Lord, I know that you know best. Yes, Lord, I know that your plan is the right plan. You are the Lord if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's where the metaphor breaks down a little bit. Unlike a scrap of canvas... The artist could not just come back and paint over your life. He comes and he has to wash it clean with his own blood. For Jesus died as your substitute. So that what once was tragedy could be made into something beautiful once again. Ephesians 2 tells us that God hath foreordained works, good works, for us to walk in them. That God has a place. He has a plan for you. And he is the king. And so as we contemplate this, as we think about here, Jesus displaying himself as the king in the midst of the storm, my question is for you, do you recognize him as king in your life? Do you live a faithless life where every event that pops onto the news makes you think the wheels are coming off and you forget God is in control? Do you live a life where you don't live your life as as if it's part of a plan, but as if it's just your own private thing to do with as you see fit? Do you recognize him as king? What? How are you obeying him today? How do you recognize today that, yes, God does have a plan for your life? Yes, God does have a plan for the world. Yes, Jesus came and died to accomplish that plan for you. What a marvelous, marvelous, magnificent thing. So we read this last little part. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw there was none other boat there, save that one wherewith his disciples were entered and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias and I into the place where they did eat bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. When they notice Jesus is gone, they get on boats and decide they're going to cross and follow him. But they followed him without recognizing who he was. They followed him superficially. You know, you can come to church every week. You can come to church every day. I don't care what you do. But if you're following Jesus without seeing him as who he is, if you're following him for what he can do, if you're following him while still trying to be your own king, then you are not following the real Jesus. Jesus wants your heart. He wants you. He wants all of you. And he wanted you so badly that he came. And he said, I'll die in your place. So to me, this fifth sign is one of the most powerful signs. It's incredible that Jesus is a change maker. It's incredible that he's not bound by time or space and that he's our provider. But one thing that I hope resonates to your core is that he has shown himself king. That your life is not your own to live. That it belongs to him. That your problems are not your own to fight. They belong to him. That all the things that you worry about and struggle about are completely and totally under his rule. So do you trust him today? Do you trust him today that although it may be through fire, or flood, or storm, that he still stands strong? Will you trust him? That's so easy to say. so hard to do. The question is, when you make decisions in your life, do you make them as if he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, it says, They shall make war against the Lamb, the Jesus, false prophet, all the enemies of God. They shall make war against the Lamb, but he shall overcome them. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's it. God, right now, is the King. And in the midst of it all, do you believe that whether he calms the storm or not, it is still his? Dream? We stand as we say, We're going to have him the invitation and give you a chance to respond.